You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord, as we enter into your word this morning, we pray that you would help us to understand it. Uh, And Lord, that its truths would sink down deep in our hearts and be made manifest in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, we're going to do the next two verses in Jude today, and then we're going to move rather rapidly. I probably will take uh, verses 5. Well, I'm not going to promise anything, but uh, we're going to cut off bigger swaths as we move on. But verses 3 and 4 this morning. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Well, last time we met in Jude, we recalled how wonderful it is to be called, beloved, and kept by God, because that is how Jude begins his letter and how he ends his letter. And especially this bit about being kept by God is especially important as we think about what Jude is saying and encouraging uh, us and those that he writes to to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. This letter is about those things, but especially about the God who keeps us in the faith. And when Jude speaks of the faith, he doesn't talk about faith in terms uh, that we normally would talk about faith, uh, trusting, relying, and depending upon Jesus. Do you have faith in Jesus? Are you trusting in him? The faith that Jude talks about is the proper noun, the faith. Uh, And it is the faith that has been handed down uh, by the apostles through God's word uh, to us today. It's an objective set of beliefs. It's not a creed. It's God's word. That's what's been given to us. That's the faith. That's why our reformers say that the Bible contains all things necessary for salvation. Right? You can read the Bible, and you can find out what our problem is and what the solution is in the Lord Jesus Christ and what the Christian life looks like and what it means to have fellowship with God. And so this faith that Jude talks about, he says, is of paramount importance. Now, I did mention in, uh, a couple weeks ago the importance of the creeds, um, that creeds are really important, uh, but they're incomplete, and they don't have... Uh, any authority in and of themselves. The articles remind us that creeds only have authority insofar as they are in agreement with the Word of God. That's what the articles of religion tell us, that the only reason why we can say, yes, the creeds are true, is because they agree with the Bible. Also, the thing about creeds is that they're a really good indicator, not of what we ought to believe as Christians, although that's very important, but actually what heretics believed at the time in which they were written. But that's why creeds were written. Creeds weren't written because everyone said, hey, you know what we all believe? We should write this down. Uh, But we're going to need to write this down and we're going to need to flesh this out a little bit uh, because there are a lot of people out there who are teaching and believing things that are otherwise. And so the Apostles' Creed is a declaration of faith that indicates the heretical problems in the church at that time. 
the Nicene Creed especially so, uh, talking about the nature and substance of Jesus. There were those in uh, Alexandria called Arians. Uh, there was a priest there uh, who believed that Jesus was not quite uh, God, uh, that it was not, he was not the God man, 100% man, 100% God. And so the Nicene Creed was written in a response to that heresy. Uh, very God, a very God, uh, begotten, not made of one substance with the virgin, right? So that, so when you read the creeds, it gives you a really good idea of what the hot button issues were uh, in their day. The articles of religion are the same way. It's very clear that the disputes uh, that birthed the Church of England were with the Roman Catholic Church, especially around issues of justification, grace, and holy communion. And, uh, and even if you wanna get a good idea of what Protestants believe, read the, the recordings of the Council of Trent uh, Trent was the response to the Reformation by the Roman Catholic Church, and it actually clearly articulates what Protestants believed. And so it is with any statement of faith like that. And if we were to write uh, a, a creed today, if we were to write a statement of belief, uh, we might include things like what Cameron talked about this morning. We might actually include something about the prosperity gospel, that, that, that the Bible stands against that, that God's word is against that. Uh, we might include something about uh, human sexuality in the family. Uh, we might include uh, something about the role of faith in our civic life. Um, you know, what does it mean to be a Christian and engage uh, in the life of our nation, especially politically? Uh, so you see these creeds, these statements of faith, the Articles of Religion, Council of Friends, they're all reflective of the struggles that are going on uh, in their day and age. And so even though they do speak to that time, if they're in sync with the Word of God, their message is universal and it still speaks Today, So when we stand up and we say the creed, whether that be the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, in our gatherings on Sundays, uh, we're declaring to one another the apostolic faith. Right? We're actually, I don't know if you knew that, that when we stand up and say that, we're saying it to one another. And we're saying it for ourselves. I believe. This is what I believe. Uh, so it's an important thing that we do and uh, certainly speaks uh, to our faith and the fa and they are all reflective uh, of the faith uh, that Jude is talking about here that is so important in the life of the early church and important to us today. Now, Jude tells us that he had hoped to write about our common salvation and what a glory it is to know the Lord Jesus and to be found in him and he in us. Uh, that's something that's always worth talking about. So around the dinner table tonight, you should talk about your common salvation with uh, your, your family uh, or pick up the phone and talk to a friend uh, about your common salvation uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ. But then he says it's necessary, which means uh, in the Greek here, absolutely essential. It wasn't, I'd rather talk to you about this, but it's absolutely essential that I write to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, why has he changed his mind? Well, yes, you would be right to say the intervention of the Holy Spirit, uh, but there's also some circumstances that have come about that have forced him to change his tact in writing this letter. And we see that in verse 4. Certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And so there's the danger that he puts out there that certain individuals have crept in the life of the church. They're within the church. 
Uh, they're not without. They're, they're not any sort of outside force, uh, but people who you sit next to in the pew, uh, people who uh, are a part uh, of the fellowship of not uh, just your own church, uh, but Jude is writing this to the entire church, and so presumably uh, these people are found in every church. And why have they crept in? Now, I want to come to the defense of those who uh, are uh, destined, uh, designated for condemnation. Uh, they've crept in uh, for any number of reasons. And, and some of these might still ring true today. Social gain. Uh, the growing place of Christianity and its prominence uh, in the life of the empire, it would still be a couple hundred years before Christianity would be uh, completely tolerated and basically take on uh, its key position in the Roman Empire, uh, but it's gaining strength. And so uh, you may have had those who said, you know, I, I like uh, the fact that uh, it, there were enough people in Ephesus to disrupt the silver idol trade. Remember that scene where the big riot broke out because uh, they preached against idols, so somebody stopped, they, they stopped buying idols and the silversmiths got pretty upset about that. So this is a force uh, in the fabric of society to be reckoned with, I think, even in Jude's day. Uh, it may be that uh, they were looking and found a welcome. Uh, they found the Christian church to be genuine, warm, and a welcoming family. And that's really what they wanted. Uh, whether circumstances in their own lives brought them to that or whatever it might be, we hear people say that today in both instances, don't we? Uh, I had a guy one time tell me that I never tire of talking about. He said, I really want to join the Advent, but I don't believe in all this Jesus stuff. And I said, well, why do you want to join the Advent? And he said, because I think it would be really good for my career. Right? He's going to join for social reasons. Uh, and others, might, you might hear them articulate things like, I just need to go to church. You know, I just need to be in and around church. It, it, it's just good for me to be uh, a part of things there. Uh, so, uh, and it may be also that they're attracted uh, to uh, the God of grace. Right, that they, they hear the message and they're actually attracted to it. Uh, it's like Paul preaching before uh, Felix. You know, I, I'd like to hear about this again. I'm at least interested in, in what you're saying here. And so I, I might be coming back again. And I'm, uh, you know, there were a lot of people who began to come to the Advent under Paul Zoll's ministry uh, because of that very reason. There was something about 1950s crab movies uh, that, uh, that appealed to people. And there was just sort of, I've never heard teaching like this before. Um, and some of those certainly resulted in genuine conversions, but others did not. And so when, for those who uh, may have actually uh, thought, well, I really am coming here because I, there's something about this grace message uh, that I like. Uh, and I think that some of those who have crept into the church may have been those people. But here the author of Hebrews talk about this type of person. This is Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of, this, of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. 
And so uh, there's a, a worse condemnation for those who have actually heard of the grace of God, who have enjoyed the grace of God, even indirectly in the fellowship of the church, enjoyed being a part of the family of God, but actually never made a child of God. And so with full knowledge, they simply say, I'm, gonna, uh, I'm just not going to believe that. I'm going to deny the faith. Uh, I'm going to put that aside, and yet I still want to enjoy the benefits of being a part of God's church. They now believe, those who have crept in, they believe and preach a message that is a perversion of God's grace into sensuality and denies our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Well, how have they perverted the grace of God? Well, Jude is saying here that they've turned grace into license. Well, what is grace? What's grace? So I heard free gift. I, y'all all have masses on. So all, y'all sound like adults from Charlie Brown. Wah, wah. What's that? Getting something, you don't deserve. Getting something you don't deserve. Thanks, Clay. Yeah. It's, it's actually, y'all are probably sitting there thinking, well, I know what it is. I just don't know how to articulate it. Um, if you want an easy shorthand, uh, it's incomplete. Uh, because it really doesn't speak to the full length as to what God's grace really is, but God's redemption at Christ's expense, if you're into acronyms, God's redemption at Christ's expense. Uh, but, but grace is the love and the mercy that God shows us in the Lord Jesus Christ uh, by dying in our stead and being reconciled uh, to God the Father. Right? In a word, that's grace. We get what we don't deserve. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so when we come into this life of grace, if you've ever come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, you've experienced this. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. All of a sudden you feel free. And this is the experience that Martin Luther talked about uh, when he said that uh, that the Christian is basically uh, free and Lord of all, uh, but also he's the slave uh, of all as well. That all of a sudden you have the freedom uh, to serve. You have the freedom uh, to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a collect that we sometimes pray in morning prayer, and you might catch it when we say, uh, in Jesus, in whose service is perfect freedom. So, this grace that we experience in our lives actually pushes us toward God, not away from him. But these folks uh, have taken grace and said, and this was a big deal in the early church because you find it elsewhere in the New Testament, are saying, well, now that you've been saved, now that you are in a relationship with Jesus, it really doesn't matter how you live. You can go and do whatever you want, and God is just going to forgive you. Now, the thing about that is that there's an element of truth to that, isn't there? That God is going to forgive you if you're in Christ. But what they're saying is that you shouldn't feel guilty about it. And in fact, uh, you should uh, go so far as to believe that God is sanctioning this kind of behavior to go off and do all of these things. And primarily what Jude is talking about here are things in the realm of, of sexuality. And uh, that, of course, is something that is very true for us today and apt. And so there are even those among us today who would say, you know, 
Maybe the Bible says something about this, uh, or the Bible does say something about this, but you don't need to worry about that, that you can go ahead and you can behave this way, you can do that, whatever it might be. Uh, and Jude is saying that that actually is perverting uh, the grace of God, making it into something that it's not meant to be. And so the great difference uh, that, that I think Jude would make and that we would make today in the church is that for the Christian, uh, you're under conviction, you know your sin and brokenness, and believing that not only what one is doing is believing is right, um, but there's a belief that God is blessing it. I'm sorry, that, that's the modern uh, and the notion that, that Jude is, is saying. But for Christians, when we sin and we struggle and we know that we're not in alignment with God's will for our lives, we're under conviction and we know our own sin and brokenness. Whereas the other side is teaching that not only what one is doing and believing is right, but God is actually blessing it. And this was even an issue in Luther's day when Luther and the Heidelberg Confession said that, um, says that a, theol uh, a theologian of the cross, um, the theologian of glory, um, sees what God is doing and calls it bad, and a theologian of the cross uh, sees what God is doing and calls it good. And by that, he's making that distinction between... Um, you know, let's take Good Friday as an example. Like the world looks at Good Friday and says what? That's bad, right? But the Christian looks at it and says it's good because we understand what God is doing through Jesus and by Jesus on Good Friday. And so the theologian of this world and the theologian, the, 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 belie the, 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 the cre creeper inners that Jude is talking about here are people that look at a good thing and call it bad and look at a bad thing and call it good. They now believe and uh, preach this message that has perverted God's grace into sensuality. So when someone says to you, okay, Andrew, or whoever you may be, uh, but you know what? You, you say that the Bible says this, and that God is against this, but you had an affair. You stole. You're prideful. Why are you elevating this thing above all others? And you would respond, the great difference is conviction. I know I'm an adulterer. I know I'm a thief. I know the sickness of my pride. And I have fled to Jesus Christ for forgiveness and transformation. Foul to the fountain I fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. These that Jude speaks of are those who not only tell you what you're doing is not a transgression, but something to be celebrated, for it is of God. But we know that God's grace never leaves us where we are. Uh, some uh, years ago, uh, a woman who uh, had been a part of our uh, church for a number of years uh, had uh, married another woman. And she came to me and she said, I really would like to start coming back to the Advent, uh, but my partner, she doesn't feel affirmed here. 
Um, so what can I say to her to help her feel like maybe she would be affirmed in this place? And I looked at her and I smiled and said, well, just let her know that we don't affirm anybody around here. We're equal opportunity non-affirmers around here. Uh, we're not going to affirm anybody uh, in their sinfulness, regardless of how it manifests itself. Now, we do give equal welcome. Uh, we do offer the grace of God because it's for everybody. Uh, but the idea that grace is perverted into full affirmation is just that. It's a perversion. That's, that's not uh, what the Bible teaches and certainly what Jude is pressing against here because grace never leaves us where we are. Right? In Christ, we're what? New creations. The old is gone and the new has come. Now, when we become new creations, Paul says, I thought I was a really good guy before I became a Christian. And then I became a Christian and now I think I'm terrible. Right? I, I struggle now with things that I didn't struggle with before, but that actually is a sign of your growth in grace. Right? When the things that trouble God begin to trouble you, uh, that's a sign that God is working in your life. And the more troubled you are, the more likely you are to throw yourself on the mercy of Jesus Christ. God's grace never says, well, remember that I'm okay and you're okay, we're all okay sort of thing. Uh, it may be apocryphal, but I've had some people affirm it. But we used to have these things that no one takes anymore called the GOEs in the Episcopal Church, the General Ordination Exam. And uh, Paul Zoll was taking them uh, way back uh, in the day. And one of, when he was taking them, the big rage was the I'm okay, you're okay, psychological uh, self-help uh, thing. And on the GOEs had asked the question, in light of this uh, new psychological insight, how will this affect your ministry in the way that you pastor your people? And Paul, allegedly, uh, drew a cross and a stick figure on the cross and another figure at the foot of the cross. And on the one on the cross, he had a little speaking bubble and in it, he wrote, if I'm okay and you're okay, then what am I doing up here? <laughs> I guess he passed. I mean, he got ordained. Um, uh, but that's just it, isn't it? If you're okay and I'm okay, and you know what? Uh, there's a lot of truth that God loves you as you are. Absolutely, he loves you as you are in your brokenness. But the difference is, is that we don't think, well, then I just stay the way that I am. Uh, love is always transformative. And you know that in your own relationships, don't you? In marriage, in, in our siblings' relationships, in, in our close family relationships, love is transformative. It, we are not the same. I'm not the same person I was when I met Lauren. I just am not. Because love has the power to change. And however love has been poured into your life, Jesus aside, it changes you. And so why would it be any different when the God of the universe says, I love you? It seems to me that the change would be even more substantive, uh, exponential even. And so Jude is really concerned that, that these people who have crept into the life of the church have perverted the grace of God and turned it into something that it's not. And actually is leading, it sounds all good and well, and there's an element of truth to it, but it's actually leading people away from Jesus and not leading people toward Jesus. So that's the danger. Another danger is that they've gone so far as to actually deny Jesus Christ as Lord and Master. Well, how have they denied Jesus Christ? For these perverters, 
Jesus is a Savior who is all love and compassion, but he is not Master and Lord. Another word for Master here, another translation, is Sovereign. A sovereign, someone you owe your allegiance to, someone who is sovereign over all. This is why it's not the case anymore. But it used to be that if you messed with the male in England, what was the punishment? Death. Why? It was the king's mail. It's still, if you get any a postcard from England, it says what? Royal mail. The mail belongs to the crown. And so if you mess with it, you die. Jesus is sovereign. Queen Elizabeth is sovereign over the male uh, in, her country, in her country, but Jesus is sovereign all, all overall. So that's another word for master. Jesus, they would say, well, yes, he's a savior who is full of love and compassion, but he really doesn't have any claim over your life. And like an Italian grandmother believes you can do no wrong and will shower you with grace that is not transformative, but affirming a delusion that ultimately leads to destruction. It is the worst kind of heresy, which is why Jude is so upset about it. These kinds of people are nice. We would even say they really seem like great Christians, and they often don't say wrong things. But actually, you can tell who they are by what they don't say. Jude writes in the first century, but could just as easily be talking about the Episcopal Church and much of Western Christianity in general today. Uh, what the church has a propensity to do is to fall in line with the contemporary intellectual fads of the day. We appropriate them because we think it will help our witness. And let's not say, oh, well, you know, our denomination is worse than any other. This is... Uh, I mean, there was a point in time where the, where the Christian church really fell in hard with a platonic way of thinking, and uh, they uh, really bought into that, and when that fell out of fad, they said, you know who we ought to listen to now? Aristotle. Let's, let's listen to Aristotle. So they really got into an Aristotelian way of thinking, and when that, fa when that fell out of fad, Christianity fell out, you know, it kind of went through a decline as well. And so this is something that happens time and time in the life of God's church, that we have this propensity to latch on to whatever the cultural, uh, philosophical uh, ideas of the day are, and we hitch our wagon to them. And when they begin to decline, what happens? Christianity declines, numerically at least, along with it. Now, I don't think that the bulk of the leadership in the Episcopal Church one day said, you know what we should try? Heresy. I do think that they thought this. We're struggling in our witness, and we must make Christianity more palatable to others. We will change our teaching on various issues in order to attract those who are not Christians. And the result? Greater losses at a greater rate. That's the real threat to Christianity and why Jude is so intentional. And so uh, this is not a, this letter gets short shrift and you can understand why. It's way too close to home. It's politically incorrect. Nobody wants to go into this letter. And so it's probably very rare that you've ever heard a sermon or a teaching through it uh, and understandably so. But the real threat to Christianity, Jude tells us, and is true today, is who? Is it communist China? 
Right, the Chinese are doing, and they they've really are doubling down uh, right now, and not just toward Christians, but, but anybody who steps out of line with uh, what the party teaches. But Christianity uh, is, is really under attack in China. And what's the result? It's growing. Fastest, Matt told us last week, the fastest growing Christian nation in the world, or Christianity is growing faster in this nation than anywhere else. Iran. Iran. I mean, these are the places where you think, ooh, they're really going after the church there. The real threat to Christianity is not a totalitarian government. The real threat to Christianity is the clergyman who has crept in and has perverted the grace of God and has denied Jesus' sovereignty and lordship. That's much more dangerous. And we've seen that played out in the life of Western Christianity. And one of the ways that you can tell is that if you actually do get them talking about whatever her issue of the day it is, the more convoluted their reasoning is behind why they believe what they believe, the greater the problem. So if you start to get some sort of convoluted reasoning and they start, you know, bouncing all over the place and saying, well, you know, Paul really didn't mean that or what was really happening here uh, is, how do they know that? It's just completely convoluted and they end up landing in a place that simply affirms what they have believed all along. And it really is a little bit like the game of telephone. Did y'all play that as a kid? Remember the game of telephone where somebody whispers something and one person's ear and it kind of makes it around and it's so funny because by the time it gets to the end, what does the answer sound like? Nothing like the original. And when you get there, what you really want to know is, well, what was the original? What did you actually say in the first instance? And as time goes on, we need to ask what the original is in Christianity. Because like the game of telephone, Time has a way of convoluting the message. And we have to constantly go back to what does Jude say? The faith once for all delivered to the saints. We have to hear the original because so many people are getting their Christianity through telephone and they're getting the wrong message. And sometimes unbeknownst to them, why wouldn't you trust your clergy, clergy person? Why wouldn't you trust your pastor to tell you that this is the faith? But we have to ask, what is the original? Christianity does not believe in uh, progressive revelation. Uh, in fact, uh, we, we don't believe that we learn more and more as time goes on. We know as much about God as Paul did, as Jude did. Now, that's not to dismiss biblical, the great advances in biblical interpretation, but those things ought to always deepen and illuminate our understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Never to upend it, because it's just a game of telephone. But we don't believe in a progressive revelation. That is, that God, yes, maybe he revealed himself in the Bible, but he continues to reveal himself in new and different ways. Well, if that's true, then you're going to have a big issue with Jude, because what does Jude say? The faith, once for all, definitive, full stop, this is it. There's no more progression. And 
Would you want there to be progression pastorally? Would you like to serve a God who's changing his mind and is capricious? That's a God you can never know. But because God has spoken once and for all, it means he's a God who can be known. You can know him. He's revealed himself. And of course, there are bits of of scripture where we say, "I, I just don't understand that. But the problem is not with God. The problem's with us and our ability to actually comprehend who he is and what he is saying. So we're not like Mormons who believe that, well, golly, I mean, where do I start uh, with, with, with the Mormons? Um, when you talk to a Mormon, you realize that the Jesus, we're all using the same words, but we're, but we're operating under different definitions. And that doesn't mean that, um, that they're not doing really great and wonderful things, uh, but what it does mean is that they are not walking in the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And they can believe whatever they want to believe. That, I mean, we live in a free country, uh, and they have the right to, to believe that, and they do some remarkable and wonderful things in this world. Uh, but when it comes to any sort of fellowship uh, or communion with one another, we can't share in that, because the Jesus that they believe in uh, is, uh, is not the Jesus of the Bible. He's a Jesus that was actually uh, born uh, to human parents that became gods themselves, and, uh, and that you too can become a, a god and one day rule over your own planet. And, um, and that's why Mormonism got into polygamy, uh, because you need lots of wives in order to populate a planet. Um, and and I could, we can have a conversation about Mormonism if you want, but I think that most of you would say, yeah, I agree. I realize Mormons aren't Christians. I, I understand that that's pretty obvious. Uh, But there are those within the life of the church today, especially in the West, that would fall into the same category. We're we're all using the same words. We might even be talking about Jesus. But who is the Jesus that we're talking about? When we say that God loves you, what what does that mean? When we use the word grace, what does that mean? When we talk about sin, what does sin mean? Is sin just, yeah, we make mistakes, but basically we're good people? Are we talking about, no, sin is a disease that has completely corrupted us and caused caused the necessity of Jesus to come into the world in order to save us. And so there's a lot of convoluted uh, talking today, uh, as there was in Jude's day, but we have to go back to the original in order to square up, what do you mean by Jesus? Who do you mean by Jesus? What do you mean by the faith? What is it? And the moment you begin to dig a little bit and actually get them talking, you begin to realize, oh goodness, you've crept in. And I didn't even know it. You crept in. I just assumed that this is what you believe, that you you held to the same faith that that I've inherited and that the Bible teaches. But in fact, uh, you're teaching something uh, that is a perversion and you're denying the lordship and sovereignty of Jesus Christ. And so what's our response? Jude says to contend. Jude is calling on Christians to be contentious, not for the sake of being argumentative, We're all encouraged by Paul, if possible, so far as it depends on you, to live peaceably with all. It's Romans 12, 18. Only madmen seek to pick a fight. They're a menace. We all long to be agreeable and to get along. But Jude tells us that sometimes we must be contentious. We must contend and fight for the faith. 
And that's very difficult because for some, often I'm told, Andrew, well, I don't understand why you have to be so argumentative about this. Well, because Jude tells me I'm supposed to be. Right? And the other thing to remember, too, is that if you're, Jude is only calling on Christians to contend for the faith because those who have crept in have brought the fight. They have been the ones to undermine the peace of God's church. They are the ones striving against our Lord and Master Jesus Christ. Don't let anyone tell you that being contentious for the Christian faith is what divides us. What divides us are lies. And we know they are lies because they are at odds with what God says in his word. Jude has to encourage us in this practice because it's so easy to become quizlings. I mean, how many of y'all really say, you know what, I want to get into a fight about theology, especially with people who are in authority in the life of the church? We forget that we are, but that's because we forget what we are about and that salvation is on the line. This is not just some sort of side conversation that Jude is having and saying, this is really the bone that I have to pick and, and this is my hobby horse. But he's talking about people being reconciled with God. He's talking about heaven and hell. He's talking about salvation. And so he's like, so to be known as contentious, it's worth it for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ. Jude is calling us to contend for the faith. We are not called to contend for our property, for our place at the table, for tolerance of our position in denominational life, for our reputation. No, we are called only to contend for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Well, what does it look like to contend? Because I think that that's one of the things that we need to, to really look at. Well, I'm going to flip over to Titus. Titus chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 9 through 16. Uh, he's talking about uh, elders in the church, presbyters. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, launch them into the sun. Take them out at the knees. No, oh, he says, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth to the pure. All things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient unfit for any good work. So what is, what is Paul telling us here in Titus? He's, it's clear he's talking about contending for the faith, isn't he? And he's not saying your job is to completely destroy these people. 
Your job is uh, to humiliate them. Your job is uh, to embarrass them publicly uh, because you know so much more than they do. No. Our words, our lives, our teaching, our witness, our prayers, this is how we contend for the faith. This is how we contend for the faith. There is a place for rebuking someone. There's a place for putting the truth out. And, and if you're anything like me, it's normally after the conversation and you rehearse it and you're like, man, I had something really good to say if I'd only said it then. We're actually not striving against the individual who has crept in. What are we striving against? Satan, right. The principalities of the right. The, the evil of this world. The lie. We're going after the lie that they've expressed, not the individual. It's not a, a personal attack. If anything, what do we want to happen with the person who has just espoused an untruth? What does Paul say? That they may be sound in the faith. We rebuke them in order that they may be sound in the faith. Not for the sake of rebuke, because if you're just going in to win the argument, you're going to win the argument probably, but you're going to lose the person. And you may actually lose the person in the end. And it may be, a lot of it depends on the setting. So if I had somebody up here and they said something that was untrue or in the pulpit, you might be embarrassed by this, but I probably would stand up and say, now what you've just heard was not true. And this is in particular what's, what, what, what isn't true. And this is why it's not true. Now you notice I didn't say this man up here or this woman up here is a liar and a thief and we ought to tar and feather them and ride them out of town on a rail. I didn't say that. Now, Second John, which we don't have a lot of time to get into today, is a little bit stronger uh, than even uh, Paul uh, because he even goes so far. This is the apostle of love in Second John verse 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, that is the faith, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. And so there actually does come a time and place where those who have crept into the life of the church, where John is saying, you can't give them a platform. Right? You can't say, well, it's the marketplace of ideas and we just kind of put it, put it out there. Right? This is the whole idea behind the secret service, the treasury department being able to discern counterfeit bills. Right? So the, the treasury department, the people who are in charge of discerning what is counterfeit and what is not, what do they spend all their time studying? real money. They don't look and study counterfeit bills. They look at real money so that when they look at the fake, they can spot it a mile away. It's not the real thing. And that's what we're into. We're into counterfeit theology. We're into a counterfeit Jesus. We're into a counterfeit faith. We're actually not interested in destroying the counterfeiters. <laughs> Uh, what we want ultimately is for the counterfeiters to come uh, to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Master. And so that's why Jude says it's so important uh, that we contend for the faith because we are so easily led astray. Uh, whether that's because we become quislings and we just say, you know, it's not worth it. I'm just going to sit back and be quiet and not cause a stir or whether we're actually led uh, astray ourselves. And I, I know that when I get into these conversations with people, I can hear my own fearful voice in the back of my head saying, but these people are so nice. 
They're, they're kind, they're, they're generous. Why do I have to make such a big deal uh, out of this issue? And I realized that that is, is really rooted in me wanting to preserve myself uh, and not willing to sacrifice my own self for the sake uh, of the faith. And so it's no wonder nobody ever wants to talk about Jude because this isn't really pleasant and, and no one really likes to do these things. Uh, but as it was in Jude's day, it is absolutely uh, imperative uh, that we contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Okay, questions, comments, concerns? Anybody? Really? Jane? I was going to say, Andrew, I really appreciate your Sunday school class and the point that the real threat to the church is these Right. Right. Um, that my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because they have hmm. rejected knowledge because you have right. rejected knowledge. Yeah. And so this impulse. Yeah, that's a. It's been around for a long time. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, Jane makes a really good point about even in Hosea. Uh, the people uh, rejecting God because the priests have turned their back on it. I mean, the entire New Old Testament is filled with really bad characters. I mean, who, who were up against Jesus? I mean, they were involved in the plot on, on Thursday night, right? The high priest. Um, and, but even the people who have been given over to be stewards of God's word, I mean, we didn't even make it out of the gate. Remember Adam and Eve and the serpent? Did God really say... Did God really, I mean, that, that's what undoes it all. And, and so sometimes in talking, and look, we all have to be really self-aware and we all have blind spots when it comes. So we need to be open to being corrected and being rebuked as well when it needs to happen. But I think the difference, I hope, is, is that we come at it with humility, at least realizing, yeah, I, I could be wrong about some things, but about this particular issue, it doesn't matter whether I'm right or not. This is what God is saying. Yeah, Don. Yeah. Strikes me another great example is um, Peter is such a great example for us. So when Christ asks, "But who do you say that I am?" Right. Jesus, Peter himself says, "You are the Christ." And then he goes two or three verses later, right? And Jesus is teaching about the second part about what's going to happen to Jesus. And the words that Jesus uses to Peter when Peter Peter first rebukes Jesus for saying that, right? And then he he rebukes. Um, Peter and saying, says, get behind me, Satan. Right. He's not, he's not really Peter the man, but what, what, what's crept in is of Satan. Right. Uh, yeah, that's a really good distinction. You know, and so when you use those words about, we're called to do it, we have to be very careful about it, but what a great example that Peter is almost every man and everything that he, he did. Right. And here he's every man, and then after he understood, he immediately allowed uh, some, some really bad theology to creep in. Yeah, that's a really good point that when, when they're at Caesarea Philippi and Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And Jesus responds, this declaration is, a, is what I'm going to build my church on. So he's not talking about Peter, he's talking about the declaration. And in the same way, just a couple verses later, when Jesus says, the son of man is going to go up to Jerusalem and be handed over to suffering and death. And Peter says, surely not, Lord. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Not to Peter, but again to that declaration of surely not. Uh, and I think that that's real. So, I mean, getting, 
getting behind the personality of the person, which actually ought to be somewhat helpful that you can actually care for the person, which Jesus demonstrates while saying, what you've said is straight from the pit of hell. Because that, I mean, that if we trust our, our hearts are going to lead us astray. I mean, when you get to Jerusalem and uh, Pilate says, who do you want me to free, Jesus or Barabbas? The cry of the crowd is, Barabbas, we're always going to pick uh, the, the wrong one. And, um, and Jesus' words from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It's a good point, Don. Yes? Right. Actually, there was a report that came out, Charles. Uh, um, no, they wouldn't. Um, and uh, that's because one of the, there is some is a minor question. Um, so the idea of needing to be baptized in order to receive communion, the old requirement used to be what, for those of y'all who have been around for a while? In the Episcopal Church, you used to have to be confirmed. But the principle is still the same. Why would we require someone to be confirmed or baptized in order to receive com communion? So they know what they're doing. Well, that they have belief. They have, they're, they're, they have faith. They've confessed their faith in Christ. They have, they have belief. I would sort of push back a little bit on that they know what they're doing because I've had parents come to me and they say, well, I don't want my kids to take communion until they can articulate and know what they're, what's going on. And I said, well, do you know what's going on? Um, so, but there, what the, the prerequisite for coming to the communion rail, well, a couple things. One, and this is where the old prayer books are so much better because they were so much more explicit about it. One, you have to be a Christian. And if you're a Christian, it means you've been baptized. And if you notice in our bulletin, it says, if you're not a Christian or if you're not, if you've not, if, if you've never been baptized and desire to be baptized, go see one of the clergy immediately after the service. And we've baptized, I mean, I probably baptized in my years here, six or seven people right after a service who have come and said, I'm a Christian, but I've never been baptized. And they need to be obedient to, to Jesus' command to be baptized. So we baptize them. Um, but belief is the real requirement to come to the communion rail. The second thing is that you're in fellowship and in charity with your brothers and sisters in Christ because you're not just coming forward as a Christian or even sitting in your pew as a Christian. I really miss coming forward. But, it's, um, but you're coming to the table with brothers and sisters. And so actually there are a number of settings that I've been in where I know I can come to the table because I'm a Christian, but I haven't come to the table because... I know that I'm not in love and charity with my neighbors, or I just don't know them. Um, so um, it's, um, and then there are other places where I may not know them very well, but I know that we're walking together, like when I go to Rwanda or someplace like that. Um, but, um, but, but a lot of that has to do, um, you know, coming to the communion table, man, how do we get on it? Is that, yeah, I mean, the, in Jude's day and even in our day, I, I've been very hesitant to ever exercise discipline against someone coming to the table, but it's almost always been because they're not, they're causing disruption in the congregation. 
They're causing disruption. Uh, there have been a few times where I've counseled some people, hey, I've noticed you've been coming to the rail. You should probably wait until you become a Christian before you come to the rail. And for them, they're kind of naive about it. And the reason why I'm, I'm serious about that stuff is because of what Paul says, that if you come and eat and drink unworthily, what happens? You eat and drink under your own condemnation, your own damnation. And so, I mean, if, if you had someone who was about to drink a cup with poison in it, would you just sort of say, okay? Or, or you'd, you'd probably run across the room and snap, you know, knock it out of their hands before they could get to it. And so I think that if anything, we don't take, I, in the Episcopal Church, I don't think that we take the communion table seriously at all. I think that there, there's a widespread problem. Uh, and I think generally in, in Western Christianity, because I'll get into arguments with, um, with even my family members who will say things like, well, I went to a Roman Catholic service and they said I couldn't come forward because uh, I wasn't Roman Catholic. I was like, right, and why would you go forward? Right, you, you, we're, you know, th there are real differences between what we believe and what Rome, now, I, now Roman Catholics are Christians, no doubt. But, but I don't go to this church and, and I don't know these people. And so communion is not a right. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's a gift. It's about what God has done for us in Jesus. And we need to take that seriously. Thanks for the rabbit trail. Um, but it all is part and parcel. Virginia. Yeah, I don't think that, well, one thing, right. Yeah, yeah. I would say that, forget denomina denominations have no, it's impossible to manage it. I think that what you find is, and that was a generalization, so I, I should be corrected in that. I think it really, deter it's determined by the individual congregations. And so I've been in some churches where I felt like this is a really big deal. Like there's a solemnity to it. There's an earnestness to it. There's a sweetness to it. And, and there's a, there, I, I feel the presence of the Lord. I feel the collective nature of us taking together. And so, I, honestly, I think that that's the teaching of the clergy. And, um, and so, I, and I'll admit around here, I don't do a good enough job of, now I think COVID has helped with this significantly. Um, and I think that the, when we finally can get back to some normalcy, it will mean more, but I want it to be more than just circumstantial. But also, it's hard for us as a denomination, I can say this, and why I think that it does lend itself to being less, um, not reverent, but just, what did I say it was, Virginia? Serious, yeah. Um, anytime Episcopalians get together, they feel the need to have a communion service. And so every time you have a communion service, it can just easily become rote. I mean, I even find myself, y'all, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to confess something to you. I found myself at the communion table saying the communion prayer, and I'm remembering, oh, I need to go do this this afternoon, and I've got this on the grocery list, because I know it. I can just sort of put it out there, and there are times where I'll think, did I just mention my grocery list at the communion table out loud, or did I say a cuss word would happen here? Uh, I just sort of zone out. Um, and, and, and I think part of it is because it, it's, it can easily become rote for us, and we have to push back against it. Mm -hmm. and I've been visiting for a while. Yeah. The invitation to be extremely contemplative and serious about what you're about to do. Yeah. And some detail. Yeah, and we, you know, we, 
I mean, and you've got to, again, it's sort of like what, what Jude is saying. You've, you've got to intentionally do it, especially amongst leadership in the church. So one of the things that we were doing, and all the clergy let it fall by the wayside. You know, we used to, we, we've been doing since COVID um, uh, an admonition to come to the table, right? This is, a, you're, well, you're, we're going to celebrate communion next week. You should really think about this. David, sorry, I went over. It's my fault. God bless you. Um, uh, if y'all need to leave for the 1115, go ahead and leave for the 1115. I, I want y'all to feel okay about it because you're going to be late. Um, so, um, but um, we, we need to be more earnest about that kind of stuff. And Libby, did you have one last thing to say? Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. We're all dead wrong. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.